This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Highnote, Principal of Highnote Strategies and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy, Integration, and Requirements, Headquarters, U.S. Air Force. Lieutenant General Highnote is a retired three-star general who just last served um, with the Air Force Futures Command. Prior to that, his role at Futures Command, he was the Deputy Director for Air Force Warfighting Integration Capability, Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Plans and Requirements. Today, Lieutenant General Highnote is a disruptive strategist, helping companies and organizations transform to get ready for today's ever-changing landscape. So first off, it's an honor, Lieutenant General uh, Hanote, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Aileen, great to be with you. Looking forward to talking leadership with you and your audience. So first, can you describe your leadership style, sir? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. That's a, you know. That's a deep question when you talk about one leadership style or what characterizes you. And I've been studying leadership for, uh, for well over 35 years and certainly was very interested in it. When I first left uh, left home as a teenager and went to the Air Force Academy, and began to really get into the the idea of how to become a leader and how to train to be a leader, and uh, and so one of the things that fascinated me about leadership, especially leadership in the military context, was how can you love your people and also be ready to send them to their doom. And, and I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but when you think about it, when it, 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 essentially a military leader, certainly one in an operational unit, has to be able to love their people. I, I, and I can talk a lot more about what that really means as a leader. But you want to be able to, to care for, to nurture, to value, to have empathy for the people you lead. And then at the very same time, if you have to, you all have to be ready to go and to fight. And if necessary, uh, you know, we don't go to, to war to die, but you could. And, uh, and certainly there have been times in our, uh, in our history where there were very high casualty rates and high levels of attrition. And so one of the things that I, I started to think about a lot, even as a teenager, was how do you hold both of those items, it, it, both of those imperatives in your, uh, in, in your personality, in your leadership style? And, and so I, I came to the conclusion that you can do both. You can love your people and be willing to serve the mission when it requires. Uh, when the mission requires you to make sacrifices, you're ready. And so a lot of folks uh, talk about that being the balance of mission and people. And certainly in, uh, in the uh, Air Force and the military, we talk a lot about the mission. We talk a lot about the people. And it's the, the interaction between the two that, uh, that I find to be really important. And so, uh, so, so I, I, I think that leadership is a lot of uh, is full of paradox. And one of the, the paradox, uh, paradoxical items about leadership is 
you're you're caring for, you're loving and helping your people, but the mission does call. And if the mission requires sacrifice, you must make that sacrifice. And so, so I found that that uh, living in the between in that in that sort of gray area space is where I lay a, lived a lot during my time in the Air Force. And and uh, the neat thing about being retired now is I don't necessarily have to send people to their doom. Uh, I can now uh, I can now love people and uh, have relationships with them and hopefully influence and lead them, but not have to have those uh, life and death type of moments. And so, uh, but it, it was certainly a big part of my time during my, uh, my service. So speaking of different environments and really swinging or that, that paradox from loving your people to, as you put it, uh, sending them to your doom, do you change your leadership style when you have to swing from those very, very different um, scenarios? So I think you do. I think there are another paradox of leadership. I think there are principles of leadership. And I think there is the situation in which you find yourself in and you apply the principles of leadership to the situation that you find yourself in. So leadership is relational. uh, Leadership is situational. I do think that there are times in, in certainly in the idea of military leadership where uh, it, it, you know, you don't sit around and explain to people why you have to go take the hill or why you're, you're, you're going to send somebody to do a bracket uh, intercept on a red aircraft. Uh, you just tell them to do it and you expect them to do it. And the discipline of the, of the military should mean that everybody is on the same page and uh, you're operating as a unit. Uh, but I do think that uh, for the majority of the time, and I certainly felt like this was true within the air force then the majority of the time i had the ability to explain the why behind what we were doing and i felt like that was both a way of serving the mission and loving your people if if you uh if you take the time to explain the why and i I of course didn't uh, am not the only person that talks about this uh uh simon sinek as an example has a book about this start with why but if you have the time to explain the why it helps your people one get to acceptance in the in the near term but also to develop in the long term because not only do they get to watch you lead but they get to understand why you're leading in a certain way and so uh so i believe that uh leadership is quite situational it's quite relational and the relationship takes place in the context of whatever's going on at the time and uh, so I think it's, it's important to be flexible in the principles that you apply uh, while still uh, understanding the needs of the person, of the people that you're leading. And I, 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 again, I think that one of the things that, that really, really helps in this situation is if you can truly believe that it's not about you, that it's about the mission, it's about the people, if you can truly uh, inculcate that into your leadership, then it's it's very, I think, very straightforward to be able to think about the needs of the lead and think about what they're hoping to get, what they actually need at any one particular uh, point in time and use you as a leader, fill that gap. Uh, and sometimes that uh, plays to your strengths. Sometimes that doesn't play to your strengths. And when it doesn't play to your strengths, you got to do something about it. 
So that might mean uh, relying on a deputy or another leader within the organization to provide those things. It might mean recruiting somebody. It might just mean getting better at something you're uncomfortable with. And sometimes that's the way to go. But in all cases, you're always thinking about what the audience needs, what the led need, uh, what your people need. And when that's uh, when you that's the focus, I find it's pretty straightforward to figure out what to do in any uh, one particular time in the context of a problem. Now, General Hynote, I'm sure you work with some incredible leaders over the decades of your career. Do any leaders come to mind in your past that provided important lessons, maybe good or bad, for example, <laughs> that yes. uh, you wish all <laughs> leaders actually could learn? Well, I, I, I won't I won't specifically mention the, any of the bad leaders. There were uh, some bad leaders and I did learn from them. Uh, but we, uh, the good news is there's, there were many, many more great leaders that I had a chance to watch and to be able to emulate the great things that they, uh, that they showed in their leadership example. And that was a huge catalyst in my leadership development. Um, it, it had so many people that I've had a chance to look up to and learn from. And some of those were officers. Some of those were, uh, were chiefs. Uh, were uh, senior enlisted uh, leaders. Some of those were civilians. Uh, in every case, I, I, uh, I was fortunate. I'll, I'll mention one just because he's somebody that's very near and dear to my heart. And, and uh, I, w when I was a very junior lieutenant colonel, I had a chance to be a aide-de-camp to a four-star general. His name was Stephen Lorenz. Uh, he was the uh, commander of the Air Force's Air Education and Training Command. For those of you in the Army, that's this, the equivalent of TRADOC. And, uh, and I had a chance to follow him around for, uh, for some time as his aide. And so during that time, I think I probably witnessed him talk about leadership somewhere around 100 times. He had this briefing called Lorenz on Leadership. And there is a book out now called Lorenz on Leadership, published by Air University. And he would encapsulate his leadership lessons learned in this briefing. And it was always different, but it always, uh, it, 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 he would always uh, take some stories and he'd be telling stories about the times when he had, uh, had been challenged as a leader or how he learned as a leader. And so uh, all of these were principles of leadership, but just hearing it over and over and over really had a, a profound impact on my leadership development. So as an example, one of his lessons of leadership is never, ever, ever give up. And of course you don't, right? And of course that's straightforward. And we've heard that in a lot of places before. Uh, but there were also some other principles that I felt like were really important in my leadership development. A good one uh, that was more specific was uh, work your boss's boss's problems, meaning that if you as a leader within a large hierarchical organization can think bigger, can think about not only your boss's problems, but your boss's boss's problems, then you're going to be making your boss look good. Uh, you're going to be helping your boss with the things that his boss cares about and uh, and your influence will grow. And so the combination of some of these timeless principles with some specific applications in the military context really made Steve Lorenz somebody that I looked up to 
and uh, he remains a friend and a mentor to this day. I'm very, very fortunate that I had a great relationship with uh, with a boss that I served as an aide, and uh, and it's been a very special relationship even to this day. I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Highnote, Principal of Highnote Strategies and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration and Requirements, Headquarters U.S. Air Force. After the break, we'll discuss effective leaders that drive with passion. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking to Lieutenant General Highnote, Principal of Highnote Strategies and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration and Requirements Headquarters, U.S. Air Force. In the last segment, we talked a lot about leadership style and a little bit about some of the personal challenges or, or the lessons learned that you had along the way. I heard you say during the prior um segment and uh, on a couple of, uh, you know, um, uh, talks that you gave that uh, you mentioned that the importance of being positive is an important element of leadership. In an article, you were described actually as um, positive, but passionate. Do you think that leaders that lead with passion are more effective? <sighs> well, the, it's a great question. And in the last segment, we talked that we talked about the fact that leadership always happens within a context that there's the leader, the led and the situation, uh, and those do change. And, and so I think it's important to remember that we change too, when we, uh, when we, we need to change as leaders because we're always considering the needs of the led and, and that, I just feel like that's really important. So when we talk about the question of passion, I probably would reframe that as being genuine. Uh, and, uh, it, and I do think that being genuine in the relationship between the leaders and the followers in the context of a situation is absolutely critical. Um, I think there's an interesting generational gap uh, with, leader, with this kind of idea of, of, of being genuine and this is why I think some of the uh, leadership coaches and the leadership commentators uh, that are most prevalent today are, are, are very much focused on this idea of being genuine. A good example would be Brene Brown. Uh, Simon Sinek would be another one. Adam Grant would be another one. And these are folks who really want to get across to those of us as leaders that having that sense of being genuine is so critical. Uh, and what does that really mean? It means it, you're not putting on airs. You're not creating the barrier between you and your, your lead, your, those that you lead. Uh, and I think that um, for me, that idea of being genuine is incredibly important when I lead. Uh, and I think to some people that comes across as being passionate because that's who I am. Uh, I am passionate about the, the people I lead. I'm passionate about the missions that uh, that, that we've been involved in. I'm passionate about defending the country and, and trying to make a, a better future for our children and grandchildren. And so, yes, uh, I, I, I'm passionate because I'm genuine. Uh, and I could be dispassionate. Uh, I could be de uh, detached, but that just wouldn't be Clint Hino. And so, uh, so I find that it's really important for me to be me. And I had to really learn this over the uh, over the years. There were times when I was very tempted to be somebody else, 
uh, and to try and be a different leader than the real Clint Hino. The good example of that was when I led the 8th Fighter Wing at Kunsan Air Base in Korea. Uh, so I was the, uh, the leader of uh, 2,000 uh, Americans far from home in a combat area. We were all the time thinking about how we were going to have to fight on a moment's notice. And uh, that wing had been led at one point by the, one of the most famous generals ever in the Air Force, and his name was Robin Olds. Uh, and in Vietnam, he had led this wing to an incredible history. Uh, and I actually had a chance to meet Robin Olds one time, and it was a, a huge honor. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. But I had to really decide, was I going to be Clint Hino as a leader, or was I going to try to be Robin Olds? And I quickly figured out, I can't be Robin Olds. I, I have to be Clint Hino, and that has to be good enough in this particular situation, in this particular time. But I was going to pour into being me, uh, and I was not going to try to be somebody I wasn't. And uh, for better or for worse, I, I led in the way that, that I, I felt best was, you know, was the best way to lead. And I tried to be genuine about it. I think for the most part that worked. And, uh, and so one of the lessons I've learned is as a leader, I have to be me. I can't be somebody else. And that doesn't mean I can't get better at my weaknesses or that I can't learn how to relate better. Uh, or communicate better, or, uh, or have discipline or personal discipline in certain areas. All of those things are still room for growth, and we all should all be growing all the time. But what it does mean is I'm not trying to be somebody different. I'm trying to be me. And me is going to be, the being a genuine me is going to meet the needs of, of the followers the best. And I think that that pretty much worked during my time. And it's something that I would counsel leaders to do now. Speaking of you, on your LinkedIn profile, you say disruptors are my people. I help turn their bold visions into reality. Can you explain what that means? <laughs> yes, I'll try to. Uh, so I'll start with... Um, well, let me just take a big picture uh, look at what, where that comes from. So I would tell you, I am probably not a disruptor myself. And I, there are going to be a lot of folks who would listen to that and go, what is he saying? Is he kidding? Uh, because I think I'm known as a disruptive leader in the military and now outside. Um, but let me just take a, a step back. I think I probably was really good at incremental change. Uh, as most military leaders are, you're constantly taking your unit uh, and making it better, just a little bit better each day. Just We, we all want to get better personally. We all want to take our, our workplace and make it just a little bit better each day. And if you do that over time, those gains really add up. And I think that's where my heart is. Uh, but then as I came back from uh, Iraq in 2018 and came back to a military and given a, a job that was totally different than the, the, the needs of the day. It was actually trying to figure out what the future of the United States Air Force would look like. And I was told, hey, uh, you need to go and, and figure this out and, be, and, and tell us what this future looks like. And so um, that led me down a path where I, I believed and now believe that the incremental change model 
was not what the Air Force needed at the time. And I certainly don't believe it's what the military needs at the time, because we have been disrupted by our competitors and, and specifically by China. And, uh, and so when I came into the, uh, the, the Pentagon, when I was told I, you need to focus on the future of the Air Force, I looked at, at all the studies and the war games and the analyses that were available and they were not looking good. And I, I, at the very same time, a, a, an incredibly important document called the National Defense Strategy of 2018 came out. And it had in it several uh, what, what was called the operational problems. And they were things that we had to go solve if we were going to win in, uh, in, a, uh, in, in some sort of conflict, especially with a pure competitor like China. And, uh, and I remember putting those operational problems on stickies on my wall. And I remember looking at the, the record of wargaming and just going, I have no idea how we're going to solve these things. And that was a really disheartening feeling because, you know, I had grown up in a, in a military that was number one at everything at all the time. And this was not the case. And so I found uh, that the evidence pointed to a, a truth and that truth was we had been disrupted we need to disrupt back and so since then i've been looking at disruptive solutions to those problems and i think we have found ways that uh, we can leverage the the strengths of the united states that includes an innovation ecosystem that is the envy of the world it also includes people who can apply disruptive innovation in very good ways i mean very powerful ways and uh, between those, uh, I think that we need disruption in defense. Uh, we need uh, to be able to take these new technologies, new concepts with, with incredible people who think differently. And the combination of that we, uh, is applied to the way we defend our country. And when that happens, I think we're going to be just fine. So I've made it uh, both on the inside when I was still serving in the military and now on the outside, I've made it my goal to empower those disruptors so that they don't feel like they're uh, oftentimes if you're if you're advocating for a disruptive solution, you feel very lonely uh, because everybody else is like, you know, looking at you like you're strange because you've got this disruptive idea. And so one of the things I hope that I've been able to do is empower people who are disruptors, who who are bringing these new uh, solutions to the fore. And hopefully I can encourage them. I can help them. I can be a catalyst for them. Uh, I can coach them and, and, and so on. And I've really made it my goal in my post-military career to be helping those type of people and those type of teams so that they can bring these disruptive solutions forward and they get a fair shake because that's all any of us want. We just want a fair shake for our ideas. And unfortunately, the system sometimes works against disruption. Uh, generally, militaries don't like to be disrupted and they generally don't like to disrupt themselves. And so uh, I'm an advocate for the disruptors because I think the evidence is clear. We need them. Uh, we need them badly to be able to defend our country in a new way for a new time. And so I'm excited to work with them. I get so much energy from working with, with these disruptive teams and disruptive companies. And it's just one of the joys of my life right now.
There's so many articles right now out about China possibly surpassing the U.S. in technology. Um, Do you believe we have to change the way the government looks at focus and horizons to stay competitive? Because, you know, it's more than, you know, sometimes, you know, people want to do, uh, you know, to adopt innovative technologies, but there's a lot in the way to actually getting that done, isn't it, sir? (laughs) Well, um, yes. Uh, And yes, uh, I think we do need to uh, to disrupt the way that we think about things like defense and and such. Uh, I'll just tell you where I where I think we are. Um, it, 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 we have so we have access to so much innovation. We do not have an innovation problem in the United States or in Australia or the United Kingdom, our closest allies. We we have more innovation than we could ever adopt. Our problem is we just don't adopt it very well. And certainly that's true in the government because there's so many things that have been working against us as we try to take new innovation and put it into the hands of the warfighters in the field. And so knocking down those barriers is a really important part of, of being a good defender and a, and a, a good steward of our military in the time that is to come. And so one of the things that is very interesting that I think is going to result in reform when it comes to the United States military is uh, back in the uh, in the 80s, there was a major act called the Goldwater Nichols Act, and it reformed the military in great ways. I mean, and, and I'm I'm one of the beneficiaries of that because I came into the military just after that was passed. And it was uh, it was a it made us a better military, but it did have unintended consequences. And I think one of the big unintended consequences that it had with the rise of the combatant commanders and their focus on the, the, the challenges of the near future, usually like as soon as tonight, when that becomes the voice of the military. We got to, we got to worry about fight tonight. We have, we always have to be worried about what's going on today. We have to deploy our assets today. We have to be ready to fight tonight. We have to be able to use all of our bombs and build more. And so there's, there's this really sense uh, that there's a, a palpable sense in the Pentagon about the needs of the urgent, uh, the needs of today. And that tends to take away from the needs of tomorrow. And it tends to take away from the future force. So in, in essence, you rob the future to pay the present. And if you know anything about our politics, that's what's happened in our politics uh, writ large. And I think from a military perspective, we've got to change that because we have bought a lot of risk or failed to buy down a lot of risk in the future. And that's not OK. We don't want to give our children and grandchildren a military that is un, uh, unable to do the things that the United States needs. But we're clearly headed that way if we don't change. And so I think that there's going to be some major reforms that are going to happen that help our military and help our, uh, our, our Congress and our country to be able to focus in a balanced way, not only on the needs of today, but also on the needs of tomorrow and be able to have a real conversation about what we can do today and, and what we have to do today to get ready for tomorrow. And so uh, it's a balance and it takes a, a tremendous amount of leadership to be able to to, uh, to figure out that balance. But clearly we've been uh, overbalanced on the short term and we need to get back to a focus on the long term. 
I'm speaking with Lieutenant General Highnote, Principal Highnote Strategies and former Deputy Director of Staff for Strategy Integration Requirements Headquarters, U.S. Air Force. Next, we'll talk about culture and driving change. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Highnote. Principal High Note Strategies and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration and Requirements, Headquarters U.S. Air Force. Sir, in the last uh, segment, we were talking about technology and China, uh, but your last role was probably one that really kind of taught taught you the landscape, right? Uh, about really driving that innovation into the Air Force. Matter of fact, I, I read some testimony you gave to the Defense Innovation Board where you said. It's not access to innovation that's the problem we're dealing with. And you talked a little bit about that in the last time, and it's innovation adoption that is the problem. How do you believe that we need to drive change in innovation to really, you know, get ahead of our, our, our adversaries? Because, you know, there's a cultural, you know, ed, you know, kind of resistance to change when it comes to um, a lot of uh, the government organizations. Yes, uh, that has been that question. Uh, I mean, the the question that of how do you how do you uh, get an organization that uh, you know most large organizations are resistant to change, and there's good reasons for that, and generally that serves the institution. Uh, but uh, but how would you get an institution that is being disrupted, that is falling behind? How do you get it to, to adopt change and um, the, the answer is, 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 is it is not easy uh, and it takes a tremendous amount of leadership energy uh, and we're seeing that right now. Um, I don't know that I would change anything about our innovation ecosystem and I think it's important to, uh, to, to, to make a, a short comment on that. We, so much of the innovation that we do see out in the open is being driven by the commercial sector and and you're seeing that uh, that these innovative um, products and concepts and ideas are 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 both profitable in in the business world and also have great use in the military world and and that's really fun to be able to take advantage of some of the great things that are happening in the commercial sector. It, less visible, but just as important is the fact that there still are military technologies in which we are investing and having a tremendous amount of success in adopting. And a good example of that would be very low observable technology. So both in the radar, uh, in radar waves and in infrared waves, we, are, we have things like aircraft that are so much better with, uh, in that their signatures are very, very small. Um, and you know that, that you don't need you know United Airlines doesn't need a stealthy airplane, uh, but the United States military does, and we've got them, and we're very fortunate for that type of innovation as well. And we should never take for granted the skilled workforces that work for uh, the, uh, the the big uh, defense conglomerates and can build these things. Uh, we just unveiled some more pictures of the B twenty one bomber. It's an amazing piece of technology. And that is being built by skilled workers in Palmdale, California, and we're awfully fortunate to have them. So I think we've got, in some ways in the United States, we've got the best of both worlds. We've got the innovative uh, sector in the commercial side that's being driven by profit, 
yet we we clearly uh, we being the military clearly get uh, benefits from that, and we also have great military uh, innovation inside of uh, defense investment. But both are are incredibly good for us. Now that doesn't mean that it's easy to adopt that innovation, and in fact, it's not. And there are lots of structural reasons for that. And I think with the structural uh, part of change, we are seeing great innovation. I know this doesn't uh, necessarily uh, uh, line up with the headlines. I think we're seeing some very interesting innovation by Congress in how we are, uh, are going to get those barriers out of the way. And we need more of that. And I'm so excited that members, both Democrats and Republicans, are agreeing that these structural barriers have to get out of the way. And, and there are some very interesting pieces of legislation, both that have been passed and that may be passed in the near future, that are very, very helpful. But also there's the culture side. And we're really specifically talking about the culture of the military itself. And, and how does it adopt change? Uh, and that has proven to be difficult. Uh, it is proven that, um, that, that leaders who grow up with a certain set of ideas about military power and how you use it and tactics and uh, operational art, they tend to want to put a, a, all of this new stuff in those paradigms or try to fit it into the old ways of doing things. That's just who we are as humans. They're not, you know, they're not bad people. It's just that they, they have certain ways of thinking and these new innovations don't necessarily line up well with those ways of thinking. And so it takes tremendous vision and leadership to be able to adopt uh, these types of, of innovative concepts and technologies and bring them in to a military that has been thinking a certain way in a certain, uh, in a certain um, uh, format in the last several years, or the last several decades. And so I think you're going to have a difficult, uh, <laughs> if you're, put it this way, if, uh, if, if you're a leader in the military and you are trying to affect major change, a good example of somebody who I think is doing this very well is Secretary Frank Kendall of the United States Air Force. Uh, he is the Secretary of the Air Force of the Department of the Air Force over the Air Force and the Space Force. And he's, he is leading in a disruptive way, but it takes a tremendous amount of energy. And, uh, and we're very fortunate that he has that energy and he can affect that change. But, uh, but it, it's going to take more leaders like that to be able to adopt this vision of a new military with new ways and uh, of fighting and new resources and to make it work. And I think we're going to have those leaders and I'm excited about some of the leaders who are being confirmed right now and to lead our military, because I, I think that they do have the right uh, uh, outlook on this idea of change. Let's look at it from the other side. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for startup tech leaders in the next few years to break into the federal market? I mean, you know, the federal procurement process is pretty slow and, uh, you know, startups, you know, need to have uh, some some financial momentum to be able to continue. True. Uh, so, uh, Aileen, um, one of the things that I've really been focusing on in my time since I've left 
uh, the military has been trying to think through what it's going to take for us to be able to take advantage of these incredible companies. And even more than that, uh, this I, the way that capital is allowing in our country, the way that capital is allowing these incredible ideas to be realized. And that's true across the, uh, across the spectrum, not just in military applications, but especially true in, in all sorts of, uh, of areas of our lives. And we are the beneficiaries of capital that is being put to good use uh, when it comes to these, uh, these ideas and making these ideas a reality. For the, for the young companies that have an idea and they want to break into the military markets, at the moment, there's a really big problem. And that problem is they have an idea. Sometimes, in fact, quite often, they get the military to fund their idea to a certain point, usually like a prototype or a test, uh, and uh, or like the loading of the software and the software works or something like that. Uh, and, and oftentimes that's done through the small business uh, contracting uh, vehicles that we have, which are very flexible. We are very uh, flexible when it comes to these small business contracts. But then there's the, there's the problem of scaling. So you, you have a great idea, you get the small business contract, you bring the idea to fruition, and there are people in the, in, in the Air Force and the military who are like, hey, we want that. And then you, you have this incredibly difficult problem, which is in order to scale, you're going to have to uh, get, you're going to have to attract capital. Uh, you're you're going to have to get the contract in the military and you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to attract private capital uh, for most of this. Uh, so they, 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 they need the military to be able to keep that momentum going so they can go to uh, the sources of capital and keep that part of the momentum going. And unfortunately, there's a lull that happens between, hey, the prototype worked and we're going to get 30 of these or 3,000 of these. And typically, that's the, the delay of putting it into uh, a service budget or, or a, a, an agency budget. And, and the way that our government works is that we have this problem of, uh, of, you know, we, we start building these budgets years prior to having them passed on Capitol Hill. A good example of that is that the current budget that we hope will be voted on soon. Um, I started working on that budget way before I retired. And now it's just finally getting to the floor and it maybe it gets uh, voted on and maybe it gets passed and signed by the president. So there's this, there's this, uh, there's this gap. Uh, between the prototype working and we're going to buy a bunch of them. And I know we probably need to go to a break, but I'd love to care, to pick up on that because I have some ideas on that gap, if that makes any sense to you. Yes, sir, it does. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Clint Hynote. Coming up next, we'll finish the conversation about finding the gap and uh, his advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. 
Amelie Black, and today I'm talking with Lieutenant General Highnote, Principal of Highnote Strategies and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy Integration Requirements, Headquarters U.S. Air Force. Sir, during the last segment, we were talking about this gap, this issue that's associated with startups with innovative technology that, you know, get to the proof of concept and there's this lull before really contracts start flowing. And, you know, that lull means no cash flow. And I've seen, especially over the last um, years, several startups, uh, you know, sort of has some challenges along the way and have to have layoffs. So uh, you were talking about your advice about, you know, shortening that gap and, and, and helping speed the innovation, but more importantly, speed the adoption of innovation that allows both sides of the equation to work. Yeah, Eileen, I'll, I'll go even further. I've seen, uh, unfortunately, I've seen companies die in that gap. And we can't uh, be okay with that because these companies have uh, have great ideas and they clearly are helpful to defense in the future. So we want to be able to figure out how we can close that gap between when their idea proves out, the prototype works, the software does what they said it was going to do, and when they can actually expect that government contract to come in. So I've seen three different things that I think are important for us to, uh, to uh, try and to see if these work. So one of these things is this idea of managing by portfolio. And that is instead of having every program in the Air Force, the Space Force, the Navy, the Army, instead of having every program managed like a, a standalone program, Instead, you have a portfolio of programs and you can manage between those. And that gives you significant flexibility to do things like speeding up the adoption of a certain technology into a standing program. And, uh, and that could be very helpful uh, in closing that gap. The second thing I've seen, and this actually was a proposal by uh, Secretary Kendall that might actually get uh, uh, passed in this next uh, few uh, weeks is this idea of of uh, of flexibility within the overall top line of the budget, but uh, the giving the secretary of the service flexibility to use money for that year. So instead of waiting for the money to be programmed a year or two years into the future, use money that is not being spent in that year to be able to uh, start a new program or accelerate a new technology so that it, it, you, you, that gap is not nearly as long as it would be uh, otherwise. And the third thing that I've seen is this idea of, of just expressing some level of commitment to, uh, to a company where they, if you, basically if you prove out and you've got this prototype to a certain level, that we are, we being the military, are going to adopt that technology at some point uh, and being able to show that, uh, that interest. And what that allows is for the, uh, the, 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 the small company to go to capital and say, hey, we've got this coming. They've, uh, they've shown their interest in, in adopting this technology. And oftentimes that will help them make their case to, uh, to private capital. And that can be really important. Uh, a kind of a subset of that is actually using uh, research and development money to kind of act as a, a as a catalyst past the prototype phase before the actual uh, uh, contract for scaling. Uh, and there, as an example, there's a program inside of the Air Force called Agility Prime. It's uh, it's involving 
uh, uh, electric vertical and takeoff, vertical takeoff and landing platforms. And so uh, these are fairly small uh, airplanes. They take off like a helicopter. They fly like an airplane. They land like a helicopter. Extremely important for both uh, uh, the, the future of aviation and the economy. We have invested, the United States Air Force has invested a, a small amount of money in several companies that have either, uh, th that are getting ready to fly their prototypes or already past flying their prototypes. And it's been extremely successful in helping these, co these, uh, these companies raise capital, raise private capital on their own. And those are the types of public-private partnerships that are different than what we've seen in the past that I think have power in this economy. Uh, it, we want private capital to be uh, developing these ideas. And if it takes a little bit of public capital to influence that private capital for the good of the defense and for the good of the nation, I feel like that's an easy call and, uh, and should be uh, as we go forward. So with that, um, I'm excited about those types of ideas and closing that gap. Sir, your career and success has truly been inspirational. Any pearls of wisdom you would give to the next generation or maybe your 22-year-old self when you were graduating from the Air Force Academy? Well, um, you know, the older I get, the fewer pearls of wisdom I think I actually have because I see how important it is for, for me to have empathy for the people uh, it, who are dealing with problems that I did not deal with and who are uh, trying to meet challenges that I didn't have to meet. Um, so I, I, what, I, what I probably would say is, is a couple of things. Uh, um, it, it, the, I'll start with leaders. good leadership takes a lot of energy. And that means that, uh, that you've got to find a way of replenishing that energy. And uh, I found that, uh, that I got very tired and run down when I didn't take care of myself or, or when I wasn't getting the rest that I needed. And so on a very basic human level, being able to find the things in your life that give you that uh, replenishment of energy, that joy in living, the rest that you need. Uh, and I've seen, the, I've seen different parts working for, you know, different styles of, uh, of this working for uh, for different folks, uh, the spiritual side, uh, mental side, things like meditation, uh, physical activity, good eating, uh, and and so forth. And all, I'd, I'd I'd say yes to all of those. But it's very important to to uh, to always be taking care of yourself. And at the very same time, remember what I said about paradoxes of leadership. At the at the very same time as you're taking care of yourself. You're always remembering, always telling yourself it's not about me. It's about the people I'm leading. It's about the mission that I'm responsible for. It's about uh, the health of the organization and the, the things that we're all doing together, the, the team. And, uh, and so there's this paradox that I think every leader has to master for himself or herself. And that is this idea of I'm going to take care of myself, but I'm always going to remember it's not about me. Uh, it's about them. And I think if you can wake up with, with both of those in your hands and be able to, uh, to find the mix that works for you, uh, you have a chance of doing something very special in your leadership. 
because you'll have the right outlook uh, in that you're always thinking it's about them. It's about the mission. It's about the people. And you'll also have the energy you need to lead well. And if you can do both of those, you're 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 very uh, you're you're on the right track to uh, to do some special things. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Lieutenant General Clint Highnote. First, sir, I want to thank you for your service to the nation and sharing your personal journey and some extremely valuable advice. Thanks, Aileen. It's been so good to, to, to discuss with you. I hope it really helps your audience. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Podcast One.